1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of fight back from the week that was on the first to fight back show of 2023 Libby was joined by the zoomer squad for a discussion on the latest set of priorities for Canada's older demographic. In addition, there are some tax and spending changes that affect the traditional seniors' age of 65-plus, including for the lowest-income seniors in Ontario, an additional $1,000 a year. Peter Mugridge is senior editor of Zoomer magazine. Bill Van Gorder is chief membership and chief operating officer at CARP. And David Kravitz is chief membership officer
2: of CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. I was looking at how many uh, seniors would be affected um, by this, and as longevity uh, continues uh, unbroken, and as more people are not retiring or unretiring or retiring but continuing with a part-time gig or something, the presence of taxpaying uh, taxpayers in this age group is growing and growing and growing. So these tax changes, which traditionally wouldn't have benefited that, quote-unquote senior population as much. There's huge numbers here. There's over uh, 3 million people over the age of 65 who have personal incomes of over $50,000, never mind household incomes. Um, there's
3: Where uh, is this, national,
2: Ontario? National, yeah. nationally. Um, there are about one out of every six of the 7 million, 7.2 million seniors are still working in some form or another and earning income. And that's without taking into account income on their investments, property taxes, and so on. So I predict that a topic going forward will be the economic contribution made by that age group, continuing to be made by that age group. And therefore, a lot of these tax changes do, in fact, benefit uh, that age group. And uh, so we are going to continue to keep a very sharp eye on those on those opportunities. Okay,
3: Bill, what's your uh, take
4: on all of that? Well, certainly uh, most of it is uh, is good uh, news and uh, expected uh, uh one of the uh, one of the things that's going to affect uh, seniors more than uh, some people might understand is the uh, home renovation tax credit. That's uh, going to be uh uh, available up to $7,500. So if you have someone in your home who has a disability, whether senior or not, you'll be able to accommodate them. Now there is a downside to, to that when the carp is after them to, to change. And that is it's a one time only. So. If, if for instance husband and wife in in a household one needs uh, renovations inside to get a wheelchair around the other one uh, uh, requires some other kind of uh, renovations perhaps in a in a bathroom you can't uh, you can't have it twice, and you can't come back later for it. You could only—it's it, a one-time uh, only. So that's something that uh, we don't think is fair, and CARP wants to be changed. But but overall, uh, good uh, news. And and by the way, uh, uh, our Ontario residents have to be happy. You know, there's still some provinces that don't in- index the income tax. So uh, this is a benefit we get in Ontario that we we don't
5: get in other uh, provinces cross country. Hmm. Peter, yeah. So the the um, the tax rates um, being bumped up for inflation will certainly help people who have a job. Uh, maybe those who got a raise, or those who are reporting more investment income. So um, you know, the the sort of thresholds now have gone from <clears throat> fifty thousand. That's that. That you'd pay a twenty twenty percent tax on fifty thousand. Now now you get a bit more wiggle room up to uh, fifty three thousand. And you don't go to the next highest tax break until you're making hundred and six thousand, which so it used to be a hundred thousand. So there's a little bit more money you can make each year um, and you're not necessarily gonna jump up to it to a higher tax bracket. so that that's good news. Um, the basic personal amount is going up a little bit, so um, you know that, that's the amount you claim that you don't pay tax on. So it's going up to 15000 so everyone gets the $15,000 that they won't have to pay tax on. Um, and uh, a couple of other things, the tax-free savings account limit is going up, so you can put in more into your your TFSAs. And, um, and of course, the, the benefits programs are, are being indexed, so OAS, GIS. I don't know whether that happens on January 1st, but um, they, they get indexed to inflation. Uh, so, some of the programs, I think, are in July, but uh, they, will, they will be indexed at some point.
1: Peter Mugrich, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, Bill Van Gorder, Chief Membership and Chief Operating Officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer of CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. This is the best to fight back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. As of this past Thursday, the Trudeau Liberals in Ottawa began a temporary requirement for those traveling into Canada from China, Hong Kong, and Macau to show proof of a negative COVID test before getting on a flight to this country. Canada has joined a list of countries around the world that have instituted the same rule. But scientists are saying it's more about politics than public health. Dr. Kerry Bowman is a bioethicist at the University of Toronto and joined Libby on Monday to discuss the new measure.
6: Really, what we know as we as we roll into year three, year three plus, is that airport checks or, you know, the advance of airport checks and point of entry screening or point of departure, um, they don't really do that much in terms of controlling, um, you know, uh, variants and things coming in. Look on the surface of it, Libby. This seems seems like the most self evident, wise thing we could possibly do. China has a billion people, billion plus now, actually, and um, you know the variants are are, and those are to all indications that we know, omicron variants running rife because they've lifted restrictions. So why wouldn't we do this? there's other ways of doing this, like wastewater testing, including wastewater testing from airplanes, Um, really would be a very effective strategy, I am told, remembering I'm not an epidemiologist. But, you know, it doesn't seem wise. And earlier in the pandemic, you know, South Africa enormously shared their wonderful data with us to let us know that Omicron had surfaced and we made some bad decisions and put people in very difficult situations with travel restrictions. And it feels right. It doesn't mean it is right. Uh,
3: The argument for it uh, is that it's not so much about controlling, you know, thinking that, that this is going to stop the variants. It's just that China is not being very forthcoming about the variants that are uh, on the loose there. And this is one way of dealing with that.
6: Yeah. So I'm not convinced that's going to work, by the way. Um, But that's just my opinion. Um, Yeah. So we we forced the hand of China to share more information. And it's absolutely true. We don't know what's really going on in China. But look, in fairness, and I'm not saying this is fully analogous. It's not fully analogous. But we don't fully know what's going on in Canada either, because we don't really have good data anymore. Yep. Now, look, it, it's on a whole different scale in China. And I get that. So Something nasty that could come at us from any corner of the planet Earth. Um, and it could be China. Um, but I really think if we're that concerned, we should be considering wastewater testing. And, you know, Omicron is is rife here in Canada and North America. It's all over the place. I mean, how many people do you know that have had Omicron? The list yep. is almost uncountable. It, exactly.
3: Exactly. But, uh, you know, there's still a a lot of people who feel that this is at least something that we can do to keep some of it out. No?
6: Why not wastewater testing? Why not something where our scientists, where our epidemiologists say this is a better idea? And look, you you know as well as I do, this is not my opinion alone. I mean, and I I defer to some of our very accomplished epidemiologists that are not convinced this is a good idea, um, that it's really going to make such a difference. It sure does feel like a good idea. I really get that. It feels like a good idea. It doesn't mean it necessarily is. What's the downside? Well, the downside is it's useless um, and it doesn't do anything. It doesn't keep us safe. And I think, in my opinion, it doesn't help the geopolitical situation. It's one more thing for our countries to fight over. Um, And I, I, I think globally, you know, Canada did fairly well with the pandemic so far. But, you know, globally, there's been Canada, and not just Canada, like, we have not stood together globally on this at all. It's been one fight after another. We've been, you know, we haven't helped nearly as much as we pretended we did. And I think the great failure of all of this has been the global approach. You know, a fantasy would have been that this pandemic would lead to tremendous global integration. And this really hasn't happened. And I don't think it does anything to help with that
1: bioethicist, Dr. Carrie Bowman at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, is it the responsibility of Canada's transport minister to fix all of the challenges in the nation's airports? We discuss next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Is it possible Canada's
1: airports are in worse shape than they were at the beginning of 2022? Many passengers, especially for those who've recently experienced air travel holiday disruptions, are saying absolutely. But now the issues are affecting the airlines rather than the airports. And critics are wondering, where is Federal Transport Minister Omar al in this mix? And why isn't he doing more to address the problems? Libby put this question to our Recovering Politicians panel, Gerard Kennedy, former Ontario Liberal Cabinet Minister and Federal MP, and former Federal Conservative Cabinet Minister and Deputy Leader Lisa Raitt.
7: Having been one, um, uh, yeah. I can tell you that he has a lot more power than he's wielding. Uh, I talked to a travel agent over the weekend, someone who used to book for me when I was in government, and sometimes does bookings for me now. And you know, his frustration. He said, it, "Christmas Day was was a day in which he worked for the entire day just because of the chaos in the system, and people are are lots of people wanting to travel over the holiday with lots of challenges and hurdles along the way." But um, I mean. I do believe that there are some policy choices that this minister could take, vis-a-vis Air Canada specifically, WestJet, um, Sunwing, that would send a clear signal to the to the management and to the boards of directors of those entities that they are seriously concerned about the impact on Canadian consumers. And it's got to be more than saying, put in an application to the Canadian Transportation Agency, and they'll get back to you in two and a half years. That's not acceptable. So, you know, he's got a lot of tools in that tool chest. And he can come out and he can come down with a, a lot of great force on on all of these airlines that seem to be hoping that things are going to hold together. And clearly, with a, a bit of turbulence, it all falls apart and falls apart spectacularly, I have to say. I mean, these are these are some major problems of cutting off air, airports in Saskatchewan and in Manitoba will not be receiving flights from from a certain airline. I mean, these are really big decisions that have massive impacts. And um, the Canadian consumers is kind of being left out in the cold, literally. I would be hoping that Transport Canada has been asked to take a look at the tools that the minister has in order to bring some rigor back to What's happening? I mean, the on-time performance rates for, for some of these airlines is 55%. That's atrocious, absolutely abhorrent. Well, and, man. you know, step, step in. Sorry, Government needs to step in. Uh, Gerard, you step in.
8: Well, I know, yeah, <laughs> I think, I think. well, I, I'm, and I'm sure Minister Agabra is thinking about things along the lines of what huh. the minister is saying, because this is a, a very haphazard situation out there for a traveler. Uh, But there's also the setup that we have. And I think part of the thing is we we really need to examine how we work when it breaks down. When when COVID happens, we need to understand that we should not be putting that under the rug, whether it's at the borders or the airports or anything. And right now, we're going through things that perhaps might have been predictable. How do you get restarted? And how do those airports that don't actually have a master, because that's one part of it, the airport, the airlines point at the airports, the airport's Point back at the airlines or at the federal government and so on. And it's just a frustrated traveler or consumer that's out there. And, uh, you know, like the airports, people may not realize respond to a, a board that is only partly appointed by different levels of government. And and they have a whole other kind of, you know, uh, focus going on, their commercial part and so on. And bringing back the travel, uh, you know, services should have been somebody taking charge somebody working with them, because obviously people have overpromised and under delivered spectacularly here. And I think it, it matters. I think people got to trust that, that they're going to fly safely, that they're going to fly in some or, or do anything that is regulated in, in in a good way. And so I hope you know, that uh, something strong does come uh, through because I think it does bring people's confidence down. And there are still challenges out there that we need. I, I think travel is, is is one of those things that maybe doesn't seem as important, but it sure is if you're in the middle of it.
7: When we were faced with a problem with moving grain in the country back in 2014, it was a terrible winter. And both railways said, no, we can't do it because we don't have enough manpower or whatever. The government of the day came in and said, OK, we're going to fine you a million bucks every time that you're not moving the grain. Guess what? They started moving the grain. They really focused on how they were going to utilize and get their get their rails, um, their cars and their locomotives and their people all lined up. And they complained about it and they were upset about it. But the government can step in and levy fines if um, federally regulated entities aren't doing what they've promised to do
1: former Federal Conservative Cabinet Minister and Deputy Leader Lisa Wright, and Gerard Kennedy, former Ontario Liberal Cabinet Minister and Federal MP. Former Ontario NDP leader Howard Hampton could not be with us this past week. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Does this new year mark a turning point in Vladimir Putin's brutal war on Ukraine? On Sunday, Ukrainian forces struck a facility housing many Russian soldiers in the Donetsk region of eastern Ukraine. In a highly unusual move, the Russians admitted to multiple casualties, reporting that as many as 63 died in that missile attack and later 89 deaths, while Ukraine claimed the attack killed 400 troops and wounded 300 more. The weapon used by Ukrainian forces was a HIMARS launch system, which is American-made. At the same time, Russian forces were stepping up attacks on civilian infrastructure across Ukraine. But then on Thursday, we learned that Vladimir Putin had ordered a 36-hour ceasefire in Ukraine from noon on January 6th to midnight January 7th. Prior to the ordering of that ceasefire on Tuesday, Libby was joined by a panel of experts to discuss the most recent successful Ukrainian attack on Russian forces. Phil Vasilevsky is a 2022 Templeton Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Dr. Andriy Zayarnyuk is a professor of history at the University of Winnipeg. And Roman Waschuk is a former Canadian ambassador to Ukraine
9: if we look at how the ukrainians uh especially pushed the russians out of kherson in november uh very similar use of himars which are extremely targeted they fall within a couple of meters of where they're supposed to be where they're supposed to go which means that if you've got the intel and there are a lot of people in those areas who don't like the russians and uh, pass along info if you've got uh a sort of uh the Western world's satellite intel, you can pinpoint uh, Russian activities and take out command posts, or in this case, a very ill-advised concentration of troops, uh, which was made even worse by the fact that some brilliant Russian logistics genius decided that to use the basement of this building as an ammo dump.
7: <laughs> yeah,
9: uh, so because the the destruction of the building is greater than these missiles could have done on on their own so in effect the poor people inside I mean, and most of them apparently were mobilized russians who uh, well had decided that opposing the regime is uh, is is too dangerous well i think that it That choice did not work out very well for them.
0: Hmm. Uh,
3: Doctor Zayernyk, what do you think is behind? It's unusual that the the Russians admitted to what they admitted to and did so so promptly. How do you read that?
4: Uh, I think uh, the answer is very simple because the explosion was so visible; it was all over social media, and uh, the number of casualties was so high they uh, had to admit it at least partially.
3: And uh, what I also find interesting is that the criticism seems to be coming from the far right or the nationalist side, which is really in favor of the war, as opposed to people who might be starting to oppose it, uh, possibly because their relatives are being used as cannon fodder.
4: Yes, nationalists are criticizing Russian generals, the way they conduct uh, this war, the way they run this war. As to the opposition, um, a real opposition to Putin's regime actually wants Ukraine's victory and the defeat of Russia and uh, Russian casualties, however, sadly, is part of that.
3: Uh, Phil Vasilevsky, do you see this as any kind of turning point?
10: I don't see this as an exact turning point. It is a definite tactical defeat for the Russians. They basically lost the battalion, approximately 600 people, uh, either dead or wounded uh, or uh, missing in action at this point. The casualty figures from my review of Russian uh, telegram and blogger channels is that we're talking about several hundred casualties. What it uh, strategically its effect, though, uh, is that... um, it strikes again at the the regime's uh, ability to portray itself as competent to run a war. And you're correct. A lot of the criticism that is coming to Putin is not for being involved in this war, but for not fighting it successfully, for not right now uh, having the upper hand. Uh, And that is where the threat to Putin's uh, regime stability right now is coming, is from the right, is from the ultra-nationalists, is from the people who are actually pro-war, but also are very disappointed at the way it is being fought so far.
3: Roman, I'm going to give you the last 20 seconds. What's your prediction about what comes next?
9: Uh, I would think that we will, in fact, see a resolution of this war uh, this year. Uh, One of the first indications will be when the ground freezes over, because it's been unusually warm in Ukraine. When the ground freezes over in a week or two, will the Ukrainians who have got uh, some reserve troops trained in the UK, including by Canadians, are they able to deploy them and their equipment to help make a, a further dent on the Russians and add to the uh, uh, to, to the sense of disappointment uh, and potentially uh, uh, discontent uh, on the Russian side?
1: Libby's conversation on Tuesday with Roman Waschuk, former Canadian ambassador to Ukraine, Phil Vasilevsky, 2022 Templeton Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and Dr. Andriy Zayarnyuk, Professor of History at the University of Winnipeg. Libby was in conversation with her panel on Tuesday ahead of a surprise announcement on Thursday by Vladimir Putin ordering a 36 hour ceasefire in Ukraine from noon on January 6th to midnight on January 7th. This is Zuma Radio's best of fight back. I'm Jane Brown. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the fight back knockout call of the week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Pat in Toronto phoned about what he sees as a successful campaign in Canada against COVID-19.
8: My issue on all of this is we need some people to do some good marketing. Canada has a death rate which is one-third of that in the U.S. from COVID, but we don't make a big thing about it. And the problem is politicians are not marketers. We need to turn this over to the people who sell soap and toothpaste and all the rest of us. They will tell us how to motivate people and how to get people on side. Um, that's what's
5: missing
0: as far as I'm concerned. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this
1: week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout call of the week is Edith in Mississauga, who phoned about a nightmare customer service experience.
7: My beef is uh, customer service, calling in. I called Tell Us yesterday. I called them last week. I waited about over two hours. Oh my God. I couldn't get anybody. Um, I called yesterday. I waited for. An hour and 37 minutes, because I timed it. Uh, Somebody came on the line, and I told them what I wanted or what I was calling about. And she said, oh, you need to speak with uh, another department.
3: Okay, yes, I think I know where this goes.
7: Yeah, she says, oh, it'll take about seven minutes. And if they don't come to you within a certain time, I'll call you back. Uh, Right. Give me your number. I did all that, and I stayed on the line I waited for over three hours and the call timed out and disconnected.
1: nine six three six i'm jane brown join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of fight back
0: the best of fight back is produced by jane brown justin Eacock, and zeev Paddy, with technical production by kelly robotham executive producer moses nimer